You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Not joining us today, unfortunately, is David Leach, ITK analyst and our regular co-host. Unfortunately, David's been taken ill and uh, can't make it this week and uh, we do wish him a speedy recovery and um, hope he's back on deck next week. Before David did fall ill, he did an interesting interview with Andrew Kingsmill, the planning program manager from Transgrid. And this is a very timely interview, getting the view from the transmission companies about what needs to be done to further the decarbonisation of Australia's grid and accommodate that big rush of wind and solar coming into the grid and uh, expand the interconnectors and thinking about some of the other things that we need for system security. Amongst the other things that we saw in the past week were the release of the scenarios being contemplated by the Australian Energy Market Operator for its integrated system plan. And I'll explain later why this is a really significant step. But first, let's have a look, listen to David's interview with Andrew Kingsmill from Transgrid. Uh, welcome to uh, Andrew Kingsmill, who is, I think, the manager of network planning at Transgrid. Uh, hi, Andrew. How long have you been the network uh, planning uh, manager there? Uh, yeah, thank you, David. Um, been the network planning manager here for three years. Uh, been with Transgrid in various roles now for over 20 years. And as the planning manager, do you think the um, environment for planning has changed much over the past three years? It seems to me that if I go back four or five or six years ago, uh, Transgrid always wanted to do something, but uh, there was never any prospect of getting much through a you know, fairly turgid RIT process. But now it seems to me that uh, you know, there's a lot more focus on, on stuff. Absolutely, there is. Look, if we look over um, even, say, the last 10 years, uh, we've come through the GFC uh, sort of about 10 years ago. Uh, We did have a slight downturn in energy consumption across the national electricity market around that time. Uh, And then there wasn't a great deal of activity just after that. Um, Renewable energy policy uh, certainly wasn't firm then. Even the LRET, uh, sort of in those early stages, wasn't firm. And we've come out of that to a completely different place now uh, where we have record demand for connections to the network. It's an exciting time. Yes, well, I was explaining to my family that I was try as hard as I might. I was thinking to be struggled to make transmission a major dinner table conversation topic. But uh, um, um, look, uh, you've... There are proposals for to for interconnectors. I think there are three major interconnector uh, proposals that Transgrid's looking at. Uh, they are the Energy Connect proposals to to South Australia, uh, increasing the transmission capacity to uh, Victoria, and tra- increasing the transmission capacity to Queensland. Um, I just briefly, I wondered if you could briefly run through the timing as you're seeing it on each of those and when you expect, I guess, uh, to see the outcomes from the AER, which, as I understand it, is, is assessing your preferred options for each of three of those three things. 
Absolutely. Look, we are working through the regulatory process for each of those projects, and so it does take some time. Uh, the Energy Connect one will probably be the first cab off the rank, uh, and that's because Electronet, the transmission network service provider in South Australia, has been working now for about three years on the regulatory investment test for that project, uh, which they did complete um, earlier this year, and that's now under review by the AER. Uh, we expect a decision on that from the AER uh, by the end of this year, by the end of 2019. Um, so that's that's quite exciting. That's imminent. Uh, that decision. The, the other upgrade... and just just follow. Sorry, sorry. Just uh, follow, just on that one. If you get that decision by the end of 2019, then there's easements and bits and pieces. When when would you? When's a reasonable expectation that that line would be energised? So 2022 is the date that we're targeting, but we are, being a long linear asset, it will be built in stages. So we'd expect that the South Australia to New South Wales section, the, the westmost section, uh, would be in service sometime in early 2022. Um, and the remaining section within New South Wales, travelling east towards Wagga Wagga, uh, would be in service probably early 2023 in reality. Thanks. Uh, and the, and the, other the other two, two then? The, yeah. the other two projects are upgrades of existing connections between New South Wales and Queensland and between Victoria and New South Wales. Um, they're, they're following the RIPT process, but we do have uh, agreement and a guidance note from the AER uh, expressing a degree of comfort um, for us to limit the options we consider uh, under those RITs to streamline the process. Um, and we are um, taking the unusual step of briefing the AER at regular stages during the regulatory investment test. So when it comes time for those tests to be complete, which will be early in 2020, um, the AER will already be well up to speed and will be able to give them expedited consideration. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, when would you expect them, them to come out of the AER process or you, you don't even know that yet? Look, the AR's guidance note uh, is aiming for the end of March next year. Um, obviously, there's a few variables in that. It depends on how material the responses during the RIPT consideration are. Um, but best case, we're hoping for um, end of first quarter or perhaps slightly into second quarter next year. Um, I guess they're both important projects, and I also want to talk very much about what's going on within New South Wales, intra-New South Wales, but uh, since I guess I grew up close to the Queensland border, if we could maybe just start there. Uh, there's a, as I saw it, there were a number of options being considered. Uh, if you're a battery supporter, it was incredible to even see a, a battery option on there for a virtual transmission link. But in your mind, uh, what's the likely, in the longer term, is the 500 kilovolt or 330 kilovolt, uh, you know, like duplicate line, excuse me if I use the wrong track, terminology the most likely option or what are you seeing up there? So with the Queensland to New South Wales RIT-T, as I mentioned, we've, we've split it into an expedited process that considers the upgrades to the existing lines, uh, which I'd see as being the March next year timeframe. What the AR's guidance note has suggested is that for larger interconnectors, which you're asking about now, uh, that we start a new regulatory process in 2020 um, but that would be under a new regulatory process linked to the integrated system plan. Of the options that we're looking at, um, 
the larger options, and it may be counterintuitive, but the larger options, such as the 500 kilovolt options, actually bring quite significant economies of scale uh, and quite a significant reduction in network losses over lower voltage options. So I would be hopeful that a, a 500 kilovolt option uh, into northern New South Wales would be uh, the option that we'd go for. Now, we can still stage the construction of that over time to minimise the capital at risk. So one of the things that we want to be very conscious of is that while we're spending money that consumers will wear on their electricity bills, that we're not running off on a frolic and over-investing in the network. But I think a, a prudent, staged approach to an efficient development will be in the best interests of consumers going forward. And that would be the 500 kilovolt option. And uh, personally, I think everyone should forget about this idea of under-investing, over-investing in the network. I think it's nearly impossible. It's <laughs> been under-invested in for so long, but that's just my point of view. Um, and if we t come down to the south side of things, uh, what it's, it's, it's now a relatively minor upgrade that's proposed. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about how that fits in with what Snowy actually wants uh, uh, as well as part of their Snowy 2 proposal. Yes, look, the, 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 uh, what they call the Group 1 project in the Integrated System Plan for Victoria to New South Wales is a minor upgrade. It's to leverage existing line capacity and to better share the power flows and manage stability to get the most we can out of those lines. That's on a, a 2022 type delivery timeframe. But there is not far beyond that um, a larger um, development of the network which will leverage um, certainly the Snowy 2.0 pumped hydro development, but also a significant amount of interest to connect renewable generation in southwestern New South Wales and northwestern Victoria, um, where at present we simply can't fit any more generation in, in, into the network. If we connect additional generators in southwestern New South Wales or in Victoria, they connect additional generators in northwest Victoria. The consequence of that is that existing renewable generation will be curtailed um, and it's not a great place to be in. So between uh, beyond that, we're looking at uh, augmentations between the Snowy Mountains, Wagga Wagga and Sydney, which we call HumeLink, and AEMO as the Victorian planner are looking at a major augmentation probably in the late 2020s, uh, extending that down to Melbourne which would create a wonderful uh, renewable energy zone right across southern New South Wales and northern Victoria. But HumeLink will have to go through its own RIT or process, uh, presumably under this new process, which I'll come on to in a, in, in a minute. But if I could just, um, I guess, I wanted to switch to within New South Wales and come at it uh, this way by asking about renewable energy zones. Uh, the ISP has come up with some renewable energy zones, and I think you, in conjunction with the New South Wales government, have come up with some renewable energy zones which sort of overlap but are not identical. Let me ask you first, what is a renewable energy zone from a transmission point of view? What is the advantage of having one from a transmission point of view? So a renewable energy zone is a, is a geographical area where based on uh, solar radiation and based on uh, measured wind speed, we know that it's a good zone for different types of renewable generation uh, and also may have some other benefits. That may be that there's firming within the zone, there may be pumped hydro resources there, 
or it may be on the way to somewhere, so it may be along one of the interconnectors. And when you get a convergence of benefits across geographical diversity, uh, fuel source diversity, uh, and then other benefits such as firming or interconnection, uh, the benefits stack up quite nicely. The advantage of, of declaring a zone is, is twofold. One is that it signals to potential investors in generation uh, where to look and where the network will be uh, developed, given that the network's heavily constrained and becoming more so. But secondly, it's more economic to develop uh, transmission infrastructure at a larger scale with economies of scale and then share those economies of scale across multiple connecting parties. We've done some studies uh, in conjunction with a consultant that show that uh, over, over a period of 20 years, there's almost a billion dollars worth of savings from using common infrastructure to get into the renewable zone, so shared scale efficient infrastructure, and then allowing parties to connect, than for each generator to have to sort out their own connections back to the backbone of the grid. That's quite significant benefits. I agree. Now, on the other hand, this brings me on to financing and process. And I guess I'm, uh, so let me start with financing. As I understand it, Transgrid is unlikely uh, to ever do much off its own bat without having, um, uh, an, I guess, an AER approved project. Is, is that as things currently stand under the current rules? Is, is that a reasonable assumption? Certainly in the regulated space, that's a reasonable assumption. So as a regulated business, we get a regulated rate of return, um, which reflects uh, a very low risk profile for the investments. Um, so we would be unlikely to take risk in a regulatory context um, because the returns simply aren't there for it. That's not to say that we wouldn't be open to doing uh, things outside of the regulatory framework um, for a return commensurate with that risk. So... This brings me on to what I might argue are almost two competing strands of thought. One is the kind of, uh, and I'm going to maybe set this up as more black and white than it is in reality, but uh, what I see on the one hand is the ESB and AEMO promoting the ISP, and in particular the ESB has um, suggested a seed fund that could be a government fund uh, and I'm thinking that when I look at how constrained the New South Wales transmission network is and that it's a net importer uh, and the reliability issues, this is something the New South Wales government uh, should be also contemplating. Um, and then on the other hand of things, and this is a long question, um, uh, we have the Kogarty process, uh, which kind of wants to push everything down to the generator level. Um I guess, firstly, what do you think about the idea of the uh, ISP and uh, ESB process and maybe some seed funding to kick things off? Because it sounds like we've got a decade's worth of transmission uh, needed that really uh, that's really needed within, you know, three years rather than 10 years. Yes, look, David, our preference is to work within the regulated framework where we can I think what we're seeing today, though, is that the existing regulatory framework uh, never contemplated a, a significant a transition of the energy system to the energy system of the future as what we're seeing today. 
Uh, speaking in New South Wales, the, the backbone of the power system, which is the transmission network, was designed to transport bulk power between coal fields and the Snowy Mountains hydro scheme, primarily to the major load centres of Sydney, Newcastle and Wollongong. That network will need to be extended into northern New South Wales, central western New South Wales and southern New South Wales with significant capacity for where the fuel sources are of the future. And it's the same in other states. You look at Victoria, the Victorian network was set up to take power from the Latrobe Valley essentially to Melbourne and to large industry on the coast. But now we're seeing the sources of generation of the future um, as being elsewhere in that state and similarly for other states. Our preference would be that the regulatory framework catches up and evolves so that governments don't need to intervene and strategic and transformational investments like what we need to do can take place within that framework. I mean, that's easy to say, but the reality is that uh, solar, does it, you've got, uh, I don't know, some fantastic number of gigawatts, let's call it 40 gigawatts of connection inquiries in New South Wales. And when I look at your transmission planning report, you, you'd, be, you'd be struggling to connect, you know, three gigawatts. Uh, and it's going to take a long time to build out this transmission. I simply don't understand how you can get it done in time with the regulatory process. Doesn't it need something like what happened in Texas with the ERCO model with some, you know, government hand to, some, to just say we need a lot of transmission and, uh, and you know, go ahead and do it and we'll make sure it gets funded somehow or other. Look, that is, that is certainly one model. Um, and, and, and I think part of the dilemma um, that, that's driving that is very much that, that these days to put generation on the ground, solar in particular, but also wind, uh, you know, it takes one to two, possibly three years at most, uh, whereas to get the transmission uh, to those areas, uh, you know, can take four years by the time you go through planning and environmental approvals and then construction, and that's even without the regulatory piece up front. So, 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 look, so the, rea the, reali the reality is, Andrew, it's seven years, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's going to be seven years for that, say, interconnect between South Australia and New South Wales. But it's three years of regulatory process at the moment before you even uh, break earth. So I mean, seven years is a long time. It, it, it is a long time when you add the regulatory process. That's exactly right. So look, what you're saying may well be true. We may well see governments uh, start to intervene because of the shortcomings of, of the regulatory process. Um, uh, but we'll wait and see what, what governments want to do in that regard. <laughs> yeah, and then if we come on to the Kogarty process, um, I, what would your general comments be about that? Is, is that something that you find attractive? I understand there's three parts to it and that people are sort of, I mean, this, this is entirely my words and I, you must push back if you tell me I'm, I'm wrong that people are sort of neutral on the first two parts and anti using Kogarty uh, and like hedges as a as a way to do transmission uh, planning. Uh, but I mean, how do you think about the Kogarty process? Look, that that largely aligns with our view. But the reasoning behind it would be: um, look, we think that the first parts have some merit on their on their own, uh, quite aside from being linked to planning the power system. Um, but when it comes to the, the, the coordination of generation with transmission, which is what the review is actually about, um, then it comes down to what's going to achieve the most efficient and effective and timely outcomes. Now, if the transmission follows generation, as is the case now in the regulatory framework, 
then we end up back at the problem that we just discussed, which is that uh, you'd have generators potentially buying transmission hedges that couldn't be realised for potentially four years if there's enough collective interest in a particular area to coordinate. Uh, and we haven't had a good track record of coordination in the past uh, of new generation. So I do see that as problematic from a timing point of view uh, and a coordination point of view. The other model that the AMC is considering in this review is a way that transmission leads generation, which is that the integrated system plan would dictate the transmission developments and then transmission hedges would be sold based on what's developed, i.e. in response to what's developed and not as a driver of developing transmission. I'd see that as a more practical way forward, I think. Uh, which would just leave us with the problem of uh, speeding up the IS, ISP. Now, Andrew, it's probably not a question you're going to feel that comfortable, but hey, uh, us interviewers do this sometimes. It seems to me, and you can tell me I'm wrong about this, that whereas the ESB and AEMA have done a lot of work on the ISP, um, let me ask you this. What is the New South Wales government uh, attitude, as you understand it, towards the ISP? And then do you have, um, uh, is there a way of understanding what the federal government's view of the ISP is and how proactive they are in getting behind it? So I can't speak on behalf of either government, although what I will observe is that in November last year, the New South Wales government released a transmission infrastructure strategy. Uh, that infrastructure strategy draws on the ISP's work, which is quite thorough and rigorous analysis, also combined with their own review and analysis, uh, and supports the idea of both energy zones in northern New South Wales, central western New South Wales, and southwestern New South Wales, and greater interconnection to other states. So I think from the transmission infrastructure strategy, uh, we can take it that the New South Wales government is supportive of the direction of the ISP and recognises the need for transmission development to unlock the low cost, low emissions uh, and create the most reliable dispersion of generation going forward. Uh, with the federal government, uh, I, I'd hesitate to comment because it's not clear to me what their uh, position is on the ISP. What I would observe is that it has very strong support from the Energy Security Board, uh, which is the body that was put in place by the COAG Energy Council to progress the recommendations of the Finkel Review a few years ago. Um, and so given that it's got the support of the Energy Security Board and the COAG Energy Council, um, I take it that there's broad support there at a government level. <laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the skeptic in me would would just observe the last time the COAG Energy Council met was about ten months ago, and I personally have never heard the federal government in recent times met. But these are these are my words, so let's not go there. It's a waste of everyone's time, I guess. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, and, and we're going to run out of time, and I, I know Giles would want to ask more. Uh, maybe I'll come back to the batteries uh, as just to how they work in a virtual transmission. But the th thing I wanted to ask you about was system strength uh, and inertia. Again, more of an electrical power engineering kind of thing. It seems to me that as we build out the transmission network uh, with more variable renewable energy, that inertia is going to keep on falling. This just and that we need to adapt the transmission grid to one which is a low inertia grid, frankly. Uh, using, I am guessing, and I'm an accountant, uh, more power electronics and, and batteries to for system strength. I'm just wondering 
has Transgrid been thinking about these issues and if you're doing any work in that area? Look, we absolutely are. It, it, it's in the early stages to date. Uh, I think when it comes to uh, system strength, uh, we're seeing system strength issues now in southwestern New South Wales, uh, and we will increasingly see them in other parts of the grid. We've got some work going on at the moment where uh, we're looking at, uh, I guess, alternatives to synchronous condensers uh, that can provide system strength. Uh, I think today synchronous condensers are what we've got, but I think the future is, as you say, much more in power electronics. And a number of manufacturers are now developing products with power electronics uh, that can also provide system strength. It's in the early stages, but we're watching it very closely because we believe that there's good potential there. The other conversations we're having are with our peers worldwide. Uh, there is, look, in Europe, um, and, and we've had contact with a number of peers in Europe, uh, it's a given that this is the path that the grid is going down. So a number of the policy discussions that are happening in Australia at the moment aren't happening in Europe. They've moved past them. And they have quite a uh, well-developed research program on how you would operate a grid that's 100% renewables. So we're also hooking into that, oh, sorry, 100% power electronics. So we're also hooking into that uh, to leverage our research as well. That's great. And uh, I guess another topic that someone will kick me if I don't ask you about is uh, MLFs. How do you see the MLF uh, uh, volatility issue, and I can't call it anything but that, being resolved? Uh, there must be some way of providing some MLF certainty to, to if you want to, um, you know, keep development of VRE, variable renewable energy going. Have you, have, what, what are your thoughts? Look, I think there are better ways to do it. Um, I, I think, I mean, marginal loss factors are an economic construct uh, which reflect the marginal change in losses from adding a megawatt of, of generation or, or a megawatt of load at certain locations. And it's there to provide uh, an economic signal and incentive to developers on where to locate generation and load. Um, by virtue of being a marginal signal, it's prone to change quite markedly in weak parts of the grid. So there's two possible solutions to it. The one that I would propose is that we strengthen the grid. And I've talked earlier in the podcast about higher voltage developments, such as 500 kilovolts. They would be stronger developments. They would minimise losses. And so they would very much reduce the volatility in marginal loss factors. Um, makes sense. The, the, the logical way to reduce the volatility is to reduce the losses. There is a second way to do it, and this is, this is not one for a network company to weigh into, but it may be possible to change the incentive. So if, if we've observed in all states across the NEM where the best areas are for wind and solar generation as the lowest cost generation of the future, then do we actually change the loss factor incentive and regime entirely? to incentivise generators to locate within those areas where it's more scale efficient. I think there might be some potential there. That's right. So some combination of those. I, to my mind, uh, I agree with you completely. Build more transmission, a lot of the MLF uh, issues will go away. And if we have renewable energy zones, it kind of uh, you can push everything around uh, to, in, in sort of some semi-planned, some semi-economic way. To me, it seems fairly straightforward. But, uh, I, you know, I guess it's easy uh, when you're sitting at your desk. The other thing, Andrew, and this will be my last question, and I thank you. It's been a very helpful and 
uh, straightforward conversation. But again, I just wanted to ask about uh, the battery option on the Queensland interconnector. Uh, I personally think a real interconnector is better than a virtual one. But when you looked at the batteries, how did the economics uh, sort of shape up at the moment? And I guess with your own forecasts compared to some of the other alternatives? Uh, look, a little bit of a spoiler alert because the modelling for the Queensland interconnector upgrade is still in progress. Um, but of the Group 1 projects, the, the physical upgrades, so in our case it's dynamic reactive plant uh, line upgrades, uh, still looks like being the preferred option. Um, but the batteries look like potentially being an economic option in addition to that. They're not there to replace physical transmission lines. What they're there to do and what this concept of a virtual transmission line is, is to manage contingencies on the network. Now, on the Queensland interconnector in particular, uh, we have physical limits of lines that are a limiting factor at some times, but at other times we have stability limits. Um, and these are limits that we have to stay within so that we don't get a South Australia-style blackout um, between New South Wales and Queensland if the interconnector trips. Um, for managing those sort of things, uh, batteries that form a virtual transmission line can manage stability quite well and in that sense can give a small incremental capacity faster than you can build a transmission line. So it, it's a good low-cost quick investment to unlock some existing capacity. But you're right, it doesn't replace an ultimate solution. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, again, it's a, it's a transmission, believe it or not, is a topic <laughs> I've come to take an increasing interest in. Uh, if it was up to me, I'd be uh, uh, using Alexander's sword, I guess, and just cutting the knot and getting someone to build some stuff. But I think you've explained uh, a lot about the issues and given us a great insight and update on what's going on in New South Wales. So I wish you all the best with it over the next couple of years. Thank you, David, and thank you for your time today. And that was Andrew Kingsmill from Transgrid. Um, quite a fascinating conversation, um, really, and um, and quite timely, as I mentioned before, given the AEMO scenarios that have come out in its planning document and the lead up to its next integrated system plan. I thought some of Andrew's comments uh, about the um, regulatory process were very interesting, marginal loss factors, of course. Um, a lot of people would be very interested in his remarks on the synchronous condensers and what might be a cheaper and smarter way to replace them, and it um, might give some people cause to think. And I was fascinated by the uh, discussion about the virtual battery, um, particularly as a cheaper and more efficient option for a grid upgrade. But look... Um, Moving on from there, it just sort of highlights, I think, the significance of the AEMO planning document. Um, I suggest that people are in, who are interested in energy go and have a look at that document or our stories and summaries of it. Um, it was fascinating to see how AEMO is looking at the future. They described five scenarios, one of them particularly bleak, basically doing worse and slower than what we're doing now, assuming, I guess, that the Queensland and Victorian state targets are pulled down by future coalition governments and not much happens at federal level. There's the central scenario, of course, which is based around current policies, both federal and state. 
And there's also these fast change or sort of a consumer-led transition, um, sort of faster, tra- faster transformations, if I can put it that way. One led by consumers, lots of rooftop solar, battery storage and electric vehicles, and another one by technology change at grid level. So more wind, more solar, and more grid-scale storage. And the final scenario, which I think is the most important one, is what they're calling the step change one. Now, this is the most important one because it's actually the only scenario that fits in with the Paris climate targets of keeping average global warming well below two degrees. And um, if you think about the first scenario, we talked about the slow change that keeps temperatures above four degrees. Even the central one, based on our current policies, according to AEMO, lock in around or fit in with a scenario of about 3.5 degrees average global warming. So the one of real interest is this fast this step change scenario, um, basically at least to the decarbonisation of the grid by 2050. And what we see now is that AEMO, and remember AEMO are the ones that manage the grid, operate the grid and are responsible for keeping the lights on, are going to be producing a 20-year blueprint on how Australia can basically decarbonise the grid between now and 2050 and I think it's going to be a fascinating document and very useful both for politicians and policymakers and to dismiss some of the myths um, that we hear in the mainstream media and the political discourse. Anyway, enough for me now. Um, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Evergen and Solaray Energy. I wish David all the best and hope he's back here next week on deck and I thank you, the listener, for listening and um, bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.